0: Hello,
1: and welcome to the New Books and Music podcast. In this episode, I speak with Daniel Kane, the author of Do You Have a Band? Poetry and Punk Rock in New York City. In the podcast, we talk about the influence of the New York schools of poetry on punk icons such as Lou Reed, Patti Smith, and Richard Howe. We explore how debates in poetry and 1960s poetic styles shaped punk, and then how punk came to influence such poets as Eileen Miles and Dennis Cooper. Hello. Hello, Rich. Thank you for doing the podcast today, and uh, please tell me uh, how you decided to write to write this book.
0: I guess um, it's been sort of in the works for a really, really long time. My research has generally focused on New York poetry poetics, especially the scene around the Poetry Project at St. Mark's Church. Do you know that place by any chance? Yeah, I've heard about it. Yeah, I mean, it's a poetry reading series that's been going since 1966. And, you know, when I was a teenager in the 80s, I would go there. I remember going there quite regularly with this friend of mine, David Steingart. You know, we were always like the kids in the back, too shy to talk to anyone, you know. And um, we'd see poets like Gregory Corso and, you know, Allen Ginsberg and Peter Orlovsky. But even back then, we were really into music and we um, were always amazed by um, the fact that we could see people like, you know, Philip Glass sitting in the audience and Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson. And Poetry Project would have these New Year's Day events. They still do, actually, um, every year. And, you know, we would sort of dutifully attend uh, uh, these day- and night-long poetry readings. And Patty Smith would sing, and she'd maybe sing about Allen Ginsberg or, or read um, – or actually not read isn't a, the right word, maybe more like intone Ginsburg's footnote to his poem, "How," and we were just completely seduced by the fact that, you know, here were all these poets, but then at the same time, here were people like Richard Hell, Patti Smith, you know, Jim Carroll. It was just amazing to us. So in a funny sort of way, this book comes out of my, t- my teenage love for that particular world and, you know, uh, having access to archives at places like NYU's uh, Fales Libraries, the Special Collections, and seeing these letters, these really intimate uh, correspondences between, uh, you know, Patty Smith and, let's say, a poet like Ann Waldman and, you know, Richard Hell writing about Ted Berrigan. It just started coming together. And, you know, I, I realized that there was a, to my mind anyway, there was a sort of missing part of the punk story, and that story was punk's response to the new york school and specifically the scene at at saint mark's church from the 60s through the 80s i I hope that sort of gives you a a a basic understanding of how at least my interest got peaked around this scene yeah no it's
1: it's great and um i think that that sort of raises two questions and um for me and the first question is is that when i always think of punk I always have sort of the Ramones in my head or sex pistols. And it's this very sort of DIY, um, almost anti-aesthetic kind of approach. And so how is this, this project sort of reshaping, redefining, um, maybe some popular conceptions of punk music?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, and it's funny that that you mentioned DIY because you know someone like Richard Hell has been really clear about how um, the mimeograph scene in the '60s, and by that I mean poets like Ted Bergen, um who would, who published a magazine called C, right? And uh, C Magazine was a mimeograph. Are you familiar with the technology of the mimeograph? It's this kind of hand crank.
1: Yeah, but I think some of the listeners on the podcast might not be.
0: Okay, yeah, I mean, uh, Mimeograph, basically, I think the most popular machine at the time was called a Gestetner. And the mimeograph was a, a, a kind of pre-Xerox machine, if you will. And one could simply type stencils, put them through the machine, and crank out uh, a couple of hundred pages of a magazine. Um, and, you know, the, the uh, uh was relatively cheap, uh, relatively available. And so poets from Ted Berrigan to Leroy Jones, who we now know as Amiri Baraka, right, um, to uh, the Poetry Project itself, which published its own institutional, if you will, mimeograph magazine called The World, they would all um, uh, 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 publish these magazines cheaply, distribute them to their friends or in local bookstores. Um, so it was a way in a sense of getting word out at, at a very local level, you know, and this DIY thing that you mentioned, Richard Hell has pointed to that particular world of Mimeo as inspiring him to, to think about the possibilities in punk. Um, if you see the way that, for example, Patti Smith uh distributed her first record, right, which is this little single, Hey Joe, right, a cover of Jimi Hendrix's Hey Joe. And on the other side was this really tremendous kind of spoken word poetry piece called Piss Factory. I mean, she distributed it on a little homegrown level, uh, sorry, label called Mare, M-E-R, Mare Mer Records um and again you know how did people get a hold of this uh the same way people got a hold of mimeograph magazines it was given to them by friends or you would know the local record stores where you could pick up the single it was sold out of the back of a van when Patti Smith would do gigs, and Richard Hell did the same thing um, with the uh, uh, single "Blank Generation." It was that was uh, put out by a small label called ORK Records, O R K. And again, you know, if you look at the way Richard Hell describes the distribution of that single, it practically mirrors the forms of distribution for the poetry scene uh, around Saint Mark that we've been talking about.
1: So, and so this. Is 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 really interesting because not only does the project maybe reshape what we think about punk, but it also maybe needs us to get get us away from maybe the conceptions of like the overly academic poets of maybe the eighties and the nineties. So so maybe to set the scene in a slightly different direction is what was the poetry scene in the 1960s and, and and how were these poets, what were they reacting against and how are they maybe different
0: from what we kind of assume poets are like today? The, both that Richard Hell and Patty Smith encountered were affiliated with what's known as the New York school, right? The New York school of poets. Now what's really, I think important to note here is that it's not the first generation New York school. And by that I'm referring to poets like John Ashbery, Barbara Guest, uh, Frank O'Hara, right? Um, it's poets that are, uh, uh, in a sense, um, thought of under the uh, uh, label second-generation New York school. A lot of people will preface that term to this day as the so-called second-generation New York school. Now, what's really interesting to me about that particular scene, the second-generation New York school scene, is that they made a virtue out of not taking poetry Seriously, you know, they had a kind of punk attitude uh, towards, in a sense, the cultural capital that had accrued to poetry in that period. You know, for them, poetry was not uh, Dylan Thomas um, spraying the crowd with his, you know, inspired uh, 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 patterned lines. It wasn't Robert Lowell um, confessing his his dark Catholic guilt, you know. Um, it, it wasn't formal uh, uh, poetry. Um, to them, poetry was something that could quite literally be made in groups, um, be produced and distributed anonymously. Who cared who wrote what line, right, in terms of the collaborative poem? That was a really major fixture of the poetry scene in the 60s. Poetry was something in a way that was, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to give the impression that they didn't take poetry seriously. It's that they didn't want readers to feel uncomfortable uh, when confronted with the poem. All right. So it was never the poet with a capital P. It was never the poem with a, ca- you know, with a capital P. Uh, it was a much uh, looser approach to the production distribution of the poem. OK, so so what on earth am I talking about? Um, I would refer listeners to a poet who was really important to, um, for example, Richard Hell, this poet by the name of Aram Saroyan. Uh, Are you familiar with him uh, by any chance? You know, so there you have Aram Saroyan producing these, these kind of one word, literally one word poems that he would center on the page and the words themselves wouldn't actually be words. They would be kind of torqued words. So, Instead of the word light in the center of the page, you would have his, uh, and I, I'm not sure if I'm spelling it correctly because I'm talking off the top of my head here, but you'd have a poem like Soroyan's which simply read L-G-H-G-H-T, so a kind of hint or semblance of the word light, or similarly, uh, Soroyan produced this little one-word poem called lopsty L O B S T W E centered on the page so you know what are you supposed to do with that right how are you supposed to think of that as a poem it's almost too easy it's really strange it's disorienting you know um again you know i mentioned this the the fashion if you will of the collaborative poem everyone wrote together so in a funny sort of way the poetry in of the 60s also proposed that the poem would be possibly something that could be produced by a band, right, by a band of poets. So endless reams of collaborative poems by Ted Berrigan, Ron Padgett, uh, Anne Waldman, Bernadette Mayer, you know, they'd all get together in a room and just trade off lines and print them, perhaps the very next day, in a mimeograph magazine like The World. And you, again, you wouldn't know which person wrote what line. Um, so casual, uh, funny, uh, weird, um, you know, transgressing this idea of poetry as something that is necessarily inspired, that one could only write a poem if one was, you know, had a direct line to the muse. You following me? So, um, so, so again, it's, it's about stripping away the kind of seriousness, the cultural capital that uh, uh, accrues to the idea of the poem and proposing the poem as something instead that is fun, <laughs> that can be done together with your friends you see so like
1: because we're focusing a little bit more on the music for the music podcast and my guess is uh probably the name that most people would know would probably be lou reed and you write about lou reed like so can you maybe give an example or talk a little bit how lou reed was influenced by these folks and how and how it kind of plays out with the velvet underground and in his later career
0: Right. I think with Lou Reed, that's that's a more difficult example in a way, because there's no sort of direct line that ties uh, Lou Reed to Ted Bergen, really, except for the fact that Lou Reed is publishing in the same magazines that these poets are publishing in. Lou Reed, you know, and I make the same point about Patti Smith in the book, Lou Reed comes to New York initially to be a poet. Um, but for him, the poet is this practically Vatic figure, right? Um, th- this unapproachable, uh, uh, per- you know, artist, uh, artist with a capital A kind of uh, uh, character. And I think you see Lou Reed playing out that vision of the poet in terms of his relationship with Delmore Schwartz, which is, how could I put it? It's, it's almost like an apprentice-master relationship, you know? And when Lou Reed comes to New York it's It's only then that he encounters the poets that we 've been talking about right the the Berrigan crowd and I think through those encounters and specifically with Gerard malanga uh, Gerard Malanga is um, andy warhol's assistant, so he's the guy helping um warhol uh, uh, with, with the with silk screening, for example, the famous uh, Campbell soup can silk screen right um And through Malanga, Reed is, is in a sense, introduced to this world of the New York school. And I think you see that lighthearted, you know, ludic, playful approach to the lyric in some of uh, uh, Lou Reed's lines. I mean, songs like Ferryboat Bill, for example, would fit in beautifully in something like Ted Berrigan's Sea Magazine. Um, But again, I mean, the the point that I make uh, in the book is that Lou Reed is not quite sure whether to take these people seriously. Um, he's still really interested in positioning himself, I think, as this kind of impassioned artist. And the New York school scene at the time, that 60s poetry scene that we're referring to, in many ways had no patience for that sort of posturing as they saw it. You know, um, The example I always think of is um, Frank O'Hara, when asked what he thought of the poet, the Welsh poet Dylan Thomas, his response was, "I can't stand all that Welsh spit," you know, and, and that to me really summarizes, in a sense, the um, the 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 skepticism that so many poets of New York School had towards you know mainstream academic formalist poetry. But again, Lou Reed is 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 caught between these two positions. On the one hand, and I make this point in my book, he joins the New York School Poets in terms of um, aligning himself to a specific kind of taste. So he writes scathingly about Robert Lowell. Now, everyone downtown is writing scathingly about (laughs) Robert Lowell. Lowell is practically a punching bag for the downtown scene. And, you know, this this kind of of hostility is something I I think... Lou Reed sort of inherited from the poetry scene, right? But but again, you know, is Lou Reed the uh the funny, playful uh a guy who's writing lyrics like Ferryboat Bill or, you know, Sally Can't Dance, or is he the lyricist who's writing these very kind of serious, profound lyrics about, you know, sadomasochism? and being uh, haunted by the spirit of Delmore Schwartz, for example, you know? So he's, 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 he's sort of negotiating these various modes, I think, um, in both his music, his lyrics and his public uh, positioning, if you will, his public performance style. Yeah. So
1: um, one thing that, that you mentioned maybe you can maybe move on to patty smith is you talked about how there's various moments where lou reed like says well i'm not going to be a rock star anymore
0: i'm just going to be a poet and they're kind of funny yeah in 1971 he announces that he's you know basically giving up the life of, of the rock and roller to commit himself full-time to poetry and where does he do this you know where does he make this announcement the poetry project at saint mark's church it's such a center for this kind of of scene but I do think uh, what you write about
1: Patty Smith is just—it's so yeah. fascinating, both her her poetry style and how she sort of pivots to music and almost kinds of sort of tries to reject a little bit
0: of what's yes, going on there. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and that was amazing. I mean, my my delight in coming across these letters that Patty Smith wrote to poets, including uh, Anne Waldman and. Um, And Michael Brownstein, she would say things like, I pretty well hate most of the stuff you guys do, but I still think, you know, in in essence, and I'm paraphrasing here, but I still think you're the coolest, (laughs) you know? Um, so she's responding in many ways to style, right, to style, not substance. I mean, there's there's one interview she does with Victor Bacris where, you know, she's asked, you're in the middle of this poetry scene, Patty. Why aren't you friends with any of these people? Why are you always making fun of them, you know? Uh, so it, it's amazing how so much of her early music and early performance work comes out of both an attraction to and rejection of what I call this, you know, poetics of sociability, that that loose collaborative playful ethos that's at the core of the saint Mark's scene you know? she at once finds it really seductive because you know i make this point in the book and and maybe this is a little bit silly but you know these poets look great they're wearing shades and leather jackets you know they've got cool long hair they're they're total hipsters so patty smith you know in a funny sort of way is really drawn to their style what she can't quite come to terms with is that poets and particularly the coolest poets in new york don't seem to take poetry very seriously. Now, this is sacrilege for her, you know, (laughs) because for her, so much of her youthful identification with poetry comes out of, you know, I walked out of the factory during my lunch hour and I went to the bookstore and I saw for the first time that, you know, beautiful cover of Arthur Rambeau on, on, you know, the book Illuminations and I was touched. It's like, really, were you, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Um, I, I think the poets, when they heard those kinds of stories, um, in a sense, and you know, there, there is, there is some evidence to back this up. Responded to her with some skepticism, uh, didn't take her seriously, and, and, you know, this was unbearable for her. So, you know, to her, poetry was Rambeau, Baudelaire, even though, let's face it, she doesn't read French, right? It, it, again, this question of style, the poet Maudit, you know, the, the, um, The transgressive poet. This was so, so important to her sense of what poetry should be, that when she encounters uh, poets and poems like, for example, Lobsty, you know, it's like, what does she do with that? How is she going to how is she going to deal with it? But, you know, again, in in my book, I, I do hope I show how important these riders were for her anyway, in terms of her just lovely dedication to a, a deep humor and playfulness, particularly in her early performances, even, you know, pre horses. If you hear the way she, she does these sort of free and uh, raps, it's astonishing how just how smart and funny she is thinking on her feet. You know, she's improvising and she's making uh, simultaneously. She's making fun of herself as this impassioned figure um, so there's that brief period between, let's say, 72 to 75, you know, when, when Horses comes out. When, again, I think Smith, like Reed, is trying to figure out where she stands in the poetry world. You know, I pretty well hate most of this stuff you guys, as I was saying. You know, I pretty well hate most of the stuff you guys do. And yet, you're so cool. You're doing all this interesting stuff, you know. Um, where do I go? Like, what do I do? I see you people at Maxis, Kansas City, you know. Um, I know I have to go to the poetry project to make a name for myself. And there you are. So how am I going to deal with this playful aesthetic, you know, and how's that going to feed into my music? I do think these questions were really, really important for her in her early work. They stopped being so important, I guess, after Horses, you know, after she becomes a star, right? But
1: it seems like even when she's remembered today, kind of, you know, in Rock and Roll Hall of Fame kind of stuff, it is kind of as, as kind of like this, like poet, right? That's, that's a poet with a capital P. So it's, it's interesting how she kind of goes back and forth and how she's seen.
0: Oh my God. You know, she, to this day, she still performs footnote to how, I don't know if you've ever seen mm-hmm. her live, but um, do you know footnote to How is That last section of yeah. how that starts off with the word, holy, holy, yeah. holy, holy. Uh, And, you know, literally just repeated, holy, 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 the world is holy, the tongue is holy, the nose, you know, the asshole, holy, everything, you know, it goes on like this. Now, if you hear Allen Ginsberg perform that, you'll often find, you know, recordings of of Ginsberg where he kind of hams it up, you know, Where, where he's actually kind of, in a sense, performing the humor in that posturing, if you see what I'm getting at. Patty Smith doesn't allow for humor when she performs that live. You know, for her, it's very much holy, 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 holy. You know, this is this is serious. You know, I'm I, I'm connected to the spirit world. I am part of this this you know beat generation. It's all very much uh, kind of uh, uh, raising the poet, if you will, uh, uh, on a very high platform, indeed. Um, which to me is antithetical to what we call punk now, right? Which aims to reduce the distance between audience um, and star. I mean, it's in a sense, you want to eliminate the star entirely. Um, not not for Patty, as far as I can tell.
1: Um, so I think this is a good time to maybe segue then to someone like Richard Howe, because because in some ways, his, his story, I mean, he comes at it from, a, I think, a very different Kind of place, and then his link, obviously, when when uh, I think it was Malcolm McLaren went to to Britain, and then kind of said, "Well, I want to do the blank generation thing, but we'll do it with the Sex Pistols." So, so, so maybe talk a little bit about Richard Hell and how he how he's part of this scene and how he how he views it and how it shapes him.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, well, Richard Hell moves to the East Village, um, you know, when he's 17, 18 years old, and and a lot of people I think are probably already familiar with his story. You know, he and Tom Miller, who would soon become Tom Berlain, meet at boarding school. Uh, they run away to Florida, get caught, get sent back. Then Richard Hell convinces his mother, basically, to just let him go. Let him go to New York City and see if he can make it as a poet. Um, so Hell, like so many other uh, uh, people of that generation go to the neighborhood where the poetry scene is happening, which is the Lower East Side East Village. And like so many of the young poets who uh, were there before him, he knows what to do to get in on the scene, which is he starts his own magazine. Um, and this was this magazine was called Genesis Grasp. Now, the first issues of Genesis Grasp are perhaps not that interesting. It's around issue three or four where he starts connecting with poets that we've been referring to, particularly... Uh, uh, people like, um, Clark Coolidge. I, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with his work, but he's really important to the downtown scene. Uh, he's close to, uh, St. Mark's affiliated poets like Bernadette Mayer. Um, they're all connected to, um, performances like Vito Acconci. So, you know, Richard Hill meets, um, uh, Klaus Oldenberg's wife Patty, and begins to have a relationship with her. So he quickly insinuates himself in, into that scene, right into the into the downtown scene. Um, but what's really really important to him, poetry wise, is that New York School world that we're talking about. He's referred to Ted Berg and C Magazine, for example, as the greatest magazine in the history of the world. You know, and and it's funny when you read why he thinks it's such a great magazine he emphasizes the um the style of the magazine as much as he does the poetry he points out you know how rough looking it was how it was stapled together you know it's it's in a funny sort of way a harbinger of of punk style that kind of patchwork approach to um putting together a look you know what i'm saying um so that's that that was always really interesting to me. And Hell goes on to identify the New York School poets and their poetry as something that in a funny sort of way gets in the way between uh him and Tom Verlaine. You know, he talks in his memoir I Dreamed I Was a Very Clean Tramp about how Tom Verlaine could never take that kind of Frank O'Hara-esque I do this, I do that style of writing seriously, you know. Whereas for Hell it was just so important so refreshing so delightful and so playful you know and i i love l's affection for new york school poetry and verlaine's perhaps distaste for new york school poetry alongside the fact that verlaine ends up freezing hell out for being too funny on stage for jumping up and down too gleefully you know for hamming it up for for basically putting on a show not not uh, in a sense, falling into line behind Verlaine's ecstatic and beautiful uh, guitar style. You see what I'm saying? I I mean, hell is, in in a funny sort of way, learning how to be punk from these poets, right? And he's translating. He's translating their attitude towards poetry, and he's translating their almost willfully silly and sometimes inane poems into what we now call punk rock. Now, that's my take on it. Um, Richard, who I've now... um, uh, you know, I've known now for a while uh, has no patience for for my so called thesis. <laughs> like, he just looks at me. He's like, "Come on, I don't know." I mean, was, but then I've said to him, "But you wrote this and you said that." I mean, of course. And he's just like, "Nah, nah, I don't buy it." You know. I I guess I just have to deal with that uh, by thinking, "Well, that's that's his role, right?" I mean, in a funny sort of way, he has to say no. You know? This is the guy who says I belong to the blank generation. I can take it or leave it each time. Like I, I think any any effort on the part of geeky academics like me to you know insist the New York School is crucial to Richard Hell, you know, the, Then I think his role is to say nope, no thank you. You know, just to keep the possibilities open, if you will. <laughs> but isn't
1: that like a classic Harold Bloom anxiety of influence Maybe. kind of thing? Maybe. <laughs>
0: Maybe, you know. or I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's just good old fashioned anti-academicism, you know. Which again, you know, as I as I've pointed out, which again is crucial to the poetry scene too. The the word academic, for poets like Lewis Warsh and Waldman, the word the very word academic is a pejorative, you know. I mean, so yeah, don't take it too seriously, right? And that's that's what I've done in my book, maybe taking it too seriously. So so even though maybe Richard Hell would like it, but
1: how do you see this affecting sort of punk in the 70s, 80s, and even kind of the versions of punk that still kind of exist today?
0: Yeah, that, that I'm not sure I can answer, as well as I might be able to answer how I see punk affecting poetry of the later 70s and 80s. Yeah. I mean, I do see punk as absolutely crucial um, for writers like Eileen Miles and Dennis Cooper, who, on the one hand, are inheriting this New York school world that is so beloved to them. But at the same time, they're finding somewhat distasteful. By the late 70s, practically every poet in in downtown New York was writing their own version of a Frank O'Hara poem. As in, you know, I went to the gym spa, had a malted uh, met Greg, shot some speed, went to anthology. You know, that, that kind of poem, right? The what O'Hara calls says, I do this, I do that. I think by the late seventies, early eighties, poets like Eileen Miles had just about had enough. You know? And I think they they really saw punk and punk attitude, and particularly this idea of, you know, kill your idols. I think they saw it as a really useful um, discourse, for lack of a a better word, that helped them, in a sense, disengage from the New York school world that they would otherwise feel perhaps somewhat trapped in, uh, if you see what I'm saying. I mean, I make a point of this in my chapter on Eileen Miles's work, where I I link the fact that her first reading was at CBGB, right, the the major sort of uh, anti-institution for punk in the 70s. I mean, her first poetry reading is at CBGB. And then at the same time, she's uh, working as James Schuyler's uh, a caretaker, James Schuyler, who's affiliated with the, that first-generation New York School world, i.e. John Ashbery, Frank O'Hara. And, you know, where James Schuyler is writing these really beautiful serial poems detailing... In exquisite detail, the way the sun sets on a facade of a building on Ninth Avenue, or you know, the way that a a flower looks as glimpsed from across the street in a ceramic pot. You know, Miles is writing uh, uh, poems with lines like "tweet, another fucking bird." (laughs) You know, she's writing in in a funny sort of way these adamantly anti pastoral uh, uh, poems that I think are staging in a very real way, her disconnect or disengagement with the New York school world that she'd otherwise be folded into. And punk was crucial, I think, for showing Miles and and poets like her. And I I would add, like I said, Dennis Cooper, but also um, poets like Eleanor Nowen, uh, for example, who's also mentioned uh, in there, Maggie Dubry. Um, You know, uh, these poets were were told over and over again, Frank O'Hara is God. And then I think that punk, in a sense... Show them a way of acting out their resentment towards that uh, uh, um, inheritance, as, as I've said before. I, I hope I'm making myself clear
1: here. No, no, this is this is this is fascinating. Um, well, I, I wanted to to thank you. Um, this has been really great. It's really illuminating. I think for people who are interested in music and people who are interested in poetry to see the connections. So, thank you very much.
0: Of course, you're very welcome. Thank you for your time.
1: You've been listening to the New Books and Music Podcast. Today I've been talking with Daniel Kane, the author of Do You Have a Band? Poetry and Punk Rock in New York City. This is your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening.